Okay, we are going to open up uh, to Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please open Philippians chapter 2. It's kind of in the back 25% of your Bible in the New Testament. Um, Before we go there, though, I need to give you a little bit of context about what's going on because we're going to jump in into something. And uh, the book of Philippians uh, is sometimes called like the book of joy. Joy is talked about throughout the book. And if you're unfamiliar with Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, he was in prison when he wrote it. And yet, he's talking about joy. And he's talking about uh, the struggles that come with being a Christ follower. And he's also talking about unity and harmony within the body of Christ. So that's kind of the the backdrop of this text. So if you have it open now, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit, and having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity. Each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at that name every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you chose to reveal yourself through your word. We thank you for the gift of your son taking on flesh. That's what we remember and celebrate this time of year That's what we remember and celebrate all year, but this time of year especially. Father, I I ask that you would would help us understand this text and and how it is useful in our relationships and in our marriages. Oh God, will you do that for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, For those of you that don't know, some of you may know this, but one of my uh, favorite things in in life are, are weddings. Specifically, wedding receptions. I love to attend them. I don't go if I'm not invited, just so you know. But uh, I love to be at weddings. Uh, The picture uh, of the unity of a husband and a wife um, is just wonderful. And when I go to receptions, my favorite part of the reception is when they have this dance. And they have, you know, they announce, they say, okay, all the couples come come to the dance floor. So all the couples there, right? The, The new the newly married couple, and, and everyone else. And they dance for a little while, and then, you know, the, uh, 
the, the speaker will say something like, okay, if you've been married for 30 minutes, please sit down. You know, so the bride and the groom. The day's all about them, but at this one dance, they sit down first. And then it'll say something like, if you've been married for a year, please have a seat. And five years, and ten years, and so on and so forth. And slowly, over time, there's fewer and fewer couples on the dance floor. Until we get to sometimes 50 years of marriage. 60 years of marriage. And there's that one couple left on the dance floor. And I'm almost tearing up about this because when I see it, they just move and sway in such harmony. It's beautiful. It's absolutely wonderful. The oneness that God created there and what they must have been through in that marriage to that moment. And they look like they're in perfect harmony. That's what I want for my marriage. And for those of you that I've talked to you about this, I, I so want to be uh, the last one someday. Not because I want everybody looking at me, but because, by the way, I'm a terrible dancer. Now, I don't want everyone looking at me, but because I want that harmony with my wife. I want to be so in sync that, that we just move together. And that it's a picture of the marriage. And that's really what I want is a marriage that just moves together in unity and in harmony. I, I think that's what we all want for our relationships and for our marriages. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we, we've been talking for the last five weeks about marriage. This is going to be the last sermon uh, on marriage, maybe not ever, but at least this series, we're going to move into something else. Um, and, and people all week are been coming up to me, all right, you're going to put a bow on it. Um, I, I hope it's awesome. I hope it's great, you know. And I just f feel a lot of pressure about this because uh, talking about biblical marriage is, um, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. But I'm going to keep it simple and actually drive home something that I, I, I think will help us. Um, if, if you remember, uh, we started with Marriage 101, the foundation of a marriage, God's design for marriage between a man and a woman uh, for a lifelong commitment. Uh, and, and then we see that sin, you know, came into the picture, divided the husband and wife. Uh, sin always divides. It separates us from God, separates husband from wife. That, that one flesh relationship, when sin is involved, there becomes conflict. And, and then we talked about the model for marriage, that the Christ church relationship is is the model for the, the husband and the wife. And with that comes all of the uh, teachings on headship and submission and love and respect within marriage. And, and then Steve talked about dealing with conflict in marriage. And he gave us the, the five biblical keys toward dealing with conflict. Um, because we know that we're sinners. We know that when sin is involved, there's going to be conflict. And then we move to what are the threats to that oneness, to, the, to that one flesh relationship. Uh, and we talk specifically about the context of, of human sexuality and how sex is beautiful and it's meant to be uh, within the, the um, marriage relationship and the threats to that that are involved with that. Um, 
And then last week we talked about suffering, which is not, by the way, something that you typically hear in a marriage series, suffering. But suffering is real. And if we don't talk about it, like we tend to think that if you're suffering, something's wrong. But that may not be the case. In fact, uh, moving into our passage today, like I said, this is written in the context of suffering. If you go back uh, to verse 29 in, in chapter 1, it's just right before this. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ today, listen to this. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. If you are a Christ follower here today, you will suffer. It's going to happen. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. That's what Paul writes to them. So, sorry, last, last, uh, ta- last sermon on marriage. We're starting with suffering. <laughs> but it's okay. It's all right. There's going to be an upswing. Don't worry. Uh, suffering's not that bad if you have the right attitude. And that's what Paul actually moves into here. The attitude that the church in Philippi is meant to have in the midst of suffering. And that attitude is meant to propel them toward a state of unity and harmony to be able to serve together for the glory of God. And I submit to you in marriages, if we listen to this passage, it has profound implications for what a husband and wife relationship should be to include unity and harmony for the purpose of glorifying God. So we're going to talk about two things today. Two main things. And they all, or both of them are, are encompassing this idea of having the right attitude for marriage. The two things are this. First, humility. Second, obedience. First, humility. Second, obedience. And I don't have... Just so you're aware, if you you guys are big note takers, and I encourage you to take notes, I don't have a 10-step plan, this sermon, to to get you to be humble. Or a five-step, you know, way to be obedient. That's That's not where this sermon is going. I thought it was maybe going there as I was preparing, but it's not. See, you've had five weeks of hearing some of the best teaching on marriage. Of how to, uh, implement certain things that will be impactful to your relationship. This sermon is going to drive home the heart. The heart. Because here's the thing. If I, if I implement the five biblical keys, now the first one is your, check your relationship with God. Make sure you love God. Okay, so there, there's a heart aspect built into all the sermons, but we, I can go through the motions, right? You can go through the motions in your marriage and put into practice uh, taming your tongue and, and loving your spouse and things like that. But if you, if, if you don't have a control over your heart, if you're not thinking about actually why you're doing certain things, then you haven't really addressed the core issue of sin at play. What do I mean by that? Before we dig in, uh, I just want to point this out. Or as an example, guys, if, if you get home from work, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to take care of the kids, and I'm going to 
uh, do the dishes and all this kind of stuff. And that's awesome. But if you get home from work and you do those same things with the thought in your mind of, well, I know this puts my wife in the mood for later. You just, you, you just did something from a, from a relatively selfish motive. You see that? And that type of a habit, it's, it's just not good. It's not good for us to live in that place. Look at what, uh, look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 3. He says, Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you uh, should be concerned not only about your own interests. So that's, that, that's a common misconception. Sometimes when we think about humility, we think uh, you don't think anything of yourself. You know, you don't even care about uh, what you need. Well, that, that's, that's not entirely it. I mean, you, ha- you have to think about what goes into uh, your needs as well. But, but you don't only think about that. You think about the interests of others as well. In this case, the interests of your spouse. And their interests, uh, in this translation, it, it, it's not meaning like, what is my wife interest, interested in, you know? Well, it's Christmas time, so I guess we have to watch Love Actually, you know? Uh, that's, not, uh, th- that, that's not what this is really about. It's about what's, what's on your spouse's heart. What, is, what does your spouse really care about? Maybe your spouse really cares about Love Actually, which is fine. But I, I'm just talking about, it's not just, you know, what's interesting to your spouse. It's about what, what's on your spouse's heart. which takes time to discern. You have to think about it. You have to be talking with your spouse. You have to be praying about it. Praying with your spouse. Ask your spouse, what, what, what are you thinking about? What are you praying about right now? Can I pray with you with that? That will help you understand what's going on. And then here's the key verse. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. And already uh, throughout this series, you, you see us point toward Jesus as the model in our marriages, in our relationships. It's just a core principle. So we're going to do it again here. Though he existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in the human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Underline that verse, verse 8. That's going to be really important, not just today, but for the rest of your life. Humility here is linked with obedience. It's linked with obedience, and we're going to come back to that. But first, I want to take a moment before we dive into humility and humility within a marriage context. I need to talk about what this is saying and what it's not saying about Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this passage is one of the core passages. How much time do I have? Okay. This passage is one of the core passages with what we call Christology, uh, what we call uh, understanding Jesus, how we build a theology of who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. It's a core passage. This passage will be discussed in every single theological book that you read about Jesus. 
And there are some really terrible teaching on it, and there's some really amazing teaching on it. And depending upon how you understand this, it will greatly impact your view of Christ. Now, some people, I'm, I'm going to do this very quickly because I'm not going to go through a whole series on who Christ is, but some people have said, and I want you to be aware of this in case you encounter this teaching, that when it says, though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That since it's using the word form there, it, it's, it's kind of meaning like, well, he wasn't like fully God. He was just existing in the form of God. That is wrong. That is absolutely 100% wrong. The same word used as uh, in verse 7, by taking on the form of a slave, looking like other men. Some people have said, okay, all right, well, he can be God, but, you know, he took on the form of a slave, so he's not fully human. He's just, he took on the form of a human, the, the look of a human. That's wrong. That's, that's, that's not a correct understanding of this. And you really have to understand what the author is doing here and what these words mean. That word, form, comes from uh, morphe, and it really is talking about uh, an outward expression of an inward reality. An outward expression of an inward reality. The form of God and the form of a slave is not meaning like, oh, he was something else but took on just an appearance. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is he was... Uh, the essence of God and human. One of the key uh, phrases you need to remember is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was God manifest in human flesh. Okay? Cool. The other thing we need to talk about, when it says that he emptied himself, you guys might hear it, if you, if you keep studying, you keep reading, this comes from the word kenosis, all right? Uh, it's known as the kenosis of Christ. And you'll hear a lot of different theories on there uh, of like, hey, what is, what is a true kenotic relationship? If people are using big words, that's, that's, uh, that's what it's referring to. And it just means emptying. It just means emptying. So we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus empty himself of? As we examine his humility and how that humility applies to our marriages, we have to ask, what did Jesus empty himself of? Well, the key here is in the next few lines. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. Some of your translations will say um, by, uh, by adding on the form of a slave or, or, or taking the form of a slave. The, the idea is this. The picture of somebody emptying something Think about like emptying a, a cup. You actually are pouring it out, right? How does he empty himself? How does he get rid of something by actually adding to himself? That's going to be really key for our understanding in this. And the way that you can kind of think about it is this. Jesus emptied himself of his uh, divine privileges or divine prerogatives. And what I'm saying there is not that he became less divine. It's that he chose to limit himself to live as a human. For example, um, we know that uh, Jesus expressed 
you know, at least some limitation of, of his omniscience. Um, in Matthew 24, when he says, uh, no one knows, talking about culmination of end times things, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that's kind of interesting. We also know that he has the power to take himself down from that cross. And this really drives home verse 8 when it talks about uh, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the sustainer of all life. Think for a moment that he had the ability to come down off that cross at any moment. He chose to stay there. At the same time, he was sustaining the very breath of the Roman soldiers who were hurling insults at him. That's humility. That's obedience. This, uh, this past Friday, so two days ago, I, I had an opportunity to uh, attend a retirement ceremony for someone. 21 years in the Air Force. Um, and he's a, he was a fighter pilot, and they were listing off his accomplishments and you would listen to it, and the guy sounds like he should have been the lead role in Maverick. You know, he was just, it was amazing. It was amazing what he had experienced in his life. And uh, the narrator said over and over again, but you would never know that. You would never know that. See, th there's this joke that goes something like this. How do you know you're in a room with a fighter pilot? They'll tell you. <laughs> They'll tell you. You fighter pilots are not known for their humility, right? Yeah. Maybe they should be, but in general, I mean, maybe, maybe they don't. There's another one that goes something to the effect of, um, how do you know the date you're on with a pilot, a fighter pilot, is half over? He says, all right, enough about me. Let me tell you about my plane. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but like... it. it, it this retirement ceremony Friday just, just held per, a perfect picture of, of humility for me because it was like, this guy had done so much. And like, I have been working with him for years. I never knew. I never knew what he had experienced in his career. Um, it was pretty amazing. That's humility. We have to think about what biblical humility is and what biblical humility isn't. Okay? It's not insecurity. It's not thinking so lowly of yourself that you become insecure with who you are. You begin to doubt the way that God made you, and then you, you frame that as being humble. Some of you have seen this happen. Some of you may do it yourselves. That's not, that's not humility. Actually, that, that's, a, that's another form of pride, but we can talk about that later. Humility is not insecurity. There is an aspect of humility that you think less of yourself, but it's not because you're, you're insecure with who you are. You have to think about it in relationship to who God is. Humility is seen in, in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the glory of God. He says uh, his train, uh, the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And that, that's an expression talking about his majesty, his glory. 
And what does Isaiah do? He says, he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. See, when, when you get a picture of the glory of God, you know exactly how small you are. And it's pretty small when you're comparing yourself to God. It's not because something is, um, is wrong with you or, you know, uh, there, there's nothing necessarily about your, your being that you should think less of. That, that, that's not it. You're made in the image of God. It's more a reflection of who God is versus his creation. You have to think about that to be able to be humble. An, another uh, biblical uh, key toward humility. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 66, uh, verse 2 says this, uh, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There's no, there's no full uh, definition of biblical humility that does not include absolute, unquestioning obedience to the word of God. You see that humility is linked with obedience. It absolutely is. In fact, Jesus talks about uh, to follow him, you must what? Pick up your cross and follow him. And Kathy said it right here. She got the core of that text. You have to deny yourself. You have to deny yourself. What does that mean? See, the concept of self-denial, I think we get it so messed up. And, and, and it leaks into all of our other understandings of theology and how we're supposed to live in godliness. The concept of self-denial is not this... Uh, grudging, white-knuckled, I'm uh, not going to gratify myself here. I'm going to go do this because I have to. I try to teach this to my kids. Um, you know, when I ask them to do something and, and they um, react in a way that is maybe grudging and white-knuckled and fine, you know, like that, which didn't, rarely happens, by the way. It rarely happens. But when they react that way, Sometimes I will tell them, don't worry about it, I'll do it. Sometimes I tell them that in not a nice way. But uh, when I say, don't worry about it, I'll do it, what I'm trying to show them in that moment is like, look, yeah, I want you to do the dishes. But I, I care more about your heart and your attitude while you're doing it. That's really important. That, that's an aspect of self-denial that I think we, we forget about. Self-denial is, is not uh, following Jesus and denying what you want to do because you have to. I mean, you do, you do have to, right? But self-denial is really about loving God so much that you choose to obey him, that you want to obey him, that you want to follow him. That's what self-denial is. So when we read here about uh, that each of you should, should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. That's not a husband saying, man, all right, fine, I'll do it. No. That's a husband saying, I, I love my spouse so much that I want to do that. And sometimes that surfaces like this. 
Katria will sometimes ask me, hey, do you want to do the dishes? To which my answer is always no. <laughs> I don't want to do the dishes. I will do the dishes. <laughs> and sometimes on my best days, I do them joyfully. <laughs> but do you, do you see the difference here? There, there's a, uh, there is an aspect of obedience because of a desire uh, to love the object of that which you are obeying. That's really important. We have to get that right to be able to understand how to actually uh, apply humility and obedience in, in, our, in our marriage relationships. So um, I, I want to read uh, this quote. It, it's, a, it's a long quote, um, but one writer talked about uh, the, the, how obedience and humility are so closely linked, particularly in this passage. Uh, this, this is what he said. Humility and obedience go a long way in giving us the content of the mind of Christ. That is, the basic orientation and even motivation that governed all that Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry. The humility is layered and textured, a session to the will of the Father, involving the relinquishing of heavenly prerogatives, the entrance into the existence of the slave rather than a Lord, and finally, experiencing death itself. Obedience, accomplishing the redemption that is the will of God. To refuse it would entail an unholy grasping or exploitation. So this is a humility and obedience that had the essential character of peace and joy. That's what I love about this sermon in this particular season. Because we think about peace and joy a lot with Christmas. And we should. This sermon is really about what we can learn about the incarnation of Christ and how that might impact our relationships and our marriages. This week going towards Christmas, when you think about the coming of Christ and what that meant, he took the form of a servant. He served. How might that impact your marriage? The writer sums up, he says this, in the mind of Christ, joy, humility, and obedience define each other. It's really hard to define what joy, humility, and obedience are in the context of this passage without referencing them. They're all so closely intertwined and intermingled. If we want to have joy, unity, and harmony in our marriages, we need to have humility and obedience. So, um, that's a little bit about humility. What about obedience? What about obedience? Well, when I say obedience, yes, Jesus was obedient to the Father, even the point of death on the cross. I'm not talking about wives being obedient to their husband. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is all of us being obedient to God. In our humility, in understanding that, that we don't know all the right answers and uh, we need God 
in order to uh, survive, in order for our relationships to flourish, we have to be obedient to him as Lord and creator. We have to be obedient to him as Lord and creator. And what that means is we are obedient to his word. He's given us what he wants us to do right here. You have to read it. You have to pray over it. Then you're obedient to it. And again, it's not an obedience that's begrudging. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. As your love for God grows, the desire to submit to his will, particularly his will for your marriage, will grow. It's an awesome thing. Um, thinking about humility and obedience and the concept of, uh, of Jesus emptying himself and how that applies to us, I came across this illustration, and I'm going to share it with you because uh, the idea of Jesus emptying himself is, there's a lot of thoughts on it all over, and some of them have been deemed heretical, weighed on in the early church. So to help you understand this and give you a picture of what this might look like uh, in a marriage, I want to leave this uh, illustration with you. If you think of um, Jesus as like a policeman, all right, some people would tell you that when he uh, took on flesh, that he, he gave up all of his abilities or... Um, um, you know, his, his authority and all of that kind of stuff, okay? So Jesus as a policeman, being among people, he would have taken off his badge. He would have taken off his uniform. You know, he's not, you know, wearing a firearm or handcuffs. He's weak and helpless. That's what some people think about the empty. That, it's really a terrible image. A better image is this. That Jesus uh, takes off his uniform. And he's among the people. But he is a lethal weapon. He is an expert negotiator. He is never out of position. This policeman it, it is walking among criminals and thieves hate him, mean to do him harm. And he could kill all of them just like that in the blink of an eye. Maybe not like that, but, you know, for, for the image. But he chooses not to. He allows himself to be captured and beaten for the good of the mission. For the good of the mission. That's really a better picture of the emptying of Jesus here. So, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to reflect upon the humility and obedience of Christ and what that looks like 
in your marriage. Um, remember, the, remember the old couple I was talking about in the beginning? We don't know what they experienced in their lives. I don't know what you're, you're currently going through in your relationships. We already talked about there will be suffering. That sin divides us. And maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe you've experienced it before and you're trying to heal from it. Maybe you're on the other side of it. And you're doing awesome. We're all in different places in our relationships. But the, the universal truth that binds us together is that we can have unity and harmony within our relationships. And it absolutely takes humility from both people in the relationship. And it takes obedience to God's word. Maybe there's something in the last five weeks that has been said that you guys don't like, and it just bothered you. It's possible that that's your pride. You have, a, you have a choice to make. You can either allow your pride to continue to work in you, or you can humble yourself before the Lord and choose to be obedient to the teaching. Be obedient to the word of God. And by the way, yes, this may end the marriage series. This is not the end of this sermon. I mean, I am ending it for those of you that are getting nervous. But uh, it's not the end of this sermon. Making war with your flesh, with your own pride, for the good of other people, so that you can fully love God and love other people, that's, that's lifelong. That will continue. It really is about your heart. We can give you the 10 steps, and we can give you the tools, and you can use them and walk those steps, and they will help. But if your heart is not addressed, with humility and obedience before the Lord. It's never going to go the way you want it to for very long. It's only with humility and obedience that we can actually do everything that was mentioned in the previous five sermons and have it be very fruitful and wonderful for our marriages. So, humility, obedience, Joy, unity, harmony, these are the things that we need to be thinking about in the coming week. As we celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus, that he took on flesh. Don't think only about uh, the, the fact that he served while he was there, the fact that he died at the, uh, at the hands of people who hated him. Don't only think about that. Think about him as a model for your own humility. I was talking with somebody, I'm just going to end with this. This is going to be the last thing. 
I was talking with somebody this past week just about the sermon. And, uh, and they said, so what, I mean, how, how are you going to wrap it all up? What are you going to say? I'm going to be like, you have to be like Jesus. That's basically what I'm saying. Uh, and he goes, okay, cool. Uh, so in case I don't make it to church, now I know that if we're in conflict, I just need to tell my wife to be like Jesus. <laughs> Notice I never said that. This is always about your own heart. And if you listened to other sermons, you would have heard Steve talk about stop trying to change your spouse. You're, you can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. There's aspects of, of growing in Christ-like character that only the Holy Spirit can do. Stop pointing fingers at your spouse. Think about your own heart. And walk humbly and obedient with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, oh, you are so good. God, you are good. That you would uh, send your son Jesus to die on on the cross, in our place, taking all of our sin, that the power of sin over us may be broken, that we may uh, be able to walk with you. Every day, Lord, we are learning what it means to be humble, what it means to be obedient. God, I want us to be people that have such uh, unity within our relationships, harmony with our spouses, that people can see that and they would say, wow, that's amazing. Look at the way that they dance with one another. Oh God, would you help us be humble and obedient so that our lives may be a testament to who you are we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.